You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Domecast. I think this is our 53rd edition since we celebrated our one-year anniversary last week. This is Pat Gannon from the Insider State Government News Service sitting in the host chair this week alongside uh, Dan Boylan from the Insider and uh, Colin Campbell and Craig Jarvis from the News and Observer here to talk about the develop, <coughs> excuse me, the developments in this week's uh, news down at the General Assembly and beyond in state government. We're going to start uh, with uh, just a, a little bit of discussion about uh, what's going on on Jones Street this week, which was primarily state budget stuff. There's a few bills here and there that are moving, but the state, the House budget uh, took took center stage uh, this week and will continue to through the end of next week when we expect to vote. So Colin, what are your uh, initial takes? Colin Campbell from the News and Observer, what are your initial takes on on the House budget process so far this year? Yeah, so sort of where we stand on the House budget process is they're, they're moving, uh, I think, fairly quickly, uh, given historical standards at least. Uh, this this week we saw the subcommittees roll out their section budgets. Uh, the big question mark right now is the full budget and what it looks like. And, of course, the, the thing everyone's uh, waiting on is uh, what will be the plan for teacher pay raises, for state employee uh, pay raises, retiree cost of living adjustments. Uh, those sorts of things will not appear in the budget until the uh, full document's released on Tuesday morning of next week. So this week we were looking at the uh, subcommittee materials um, and it was one of the quietest budget rollouts we've seen in a while. I was talking to uh, Gary Robertson of Associated Press, who's who's been in the Capitol Press Corps for many years, and, and, and he and the rest of us sort of felt like there really wasn't much excitement on uh, Thursday as these uh, budget documents were rolling out for different subject areas. A lot of the committee meetings were very short. Uh, a lot of times you flip through the... Um, uh, what's called the money report, but basically list all the new spending and the amounts, and you'd see just pages of pages that were uh, completely blank. Uh, there's no additional spending beyond what was called for in last year's uh, budget in the the first part of the uh, two-year cycle. Um, and then there was very little amendments. Uh, normally, uh, when you have these budget subcommittee meetings, the way they work out is the budget chairs, the staff presents uh, what's in the uh, initial proposal, and then there's sort of a, a hour-long break, and lawmakers can file amendments for things they'd like to see in the budget, and then they vote the amendments up, amendments up and down. Um, there was very little of that on Thursday. Um, a couple of uh, committees either had one amendment, it was ruled out of order, or even uh, it was in the Health and Human Services um, committee meeting, uh, they had no amendments in that, so they just passed the budget um, as it was. You didn't even see that many lobbyists around. I, the transportation committee meeting I was in, um, I, I don't think I've ever seen that committee room so devoid of like a giant lobbying presence, which suggests that uh, the lobbying interests didn't feel like they had much to gain by being there. And the takeaway I felt like was that um, we might be seeing all the energy going towards uh, and the funding going towards the teacher raise, employee raise uh, aspect of the budget, um, because we do have a fairly uh, a lighter uh, spending increase. It's like two point something percent. Um, and if you're not going to spend a lot on new programs, then you have more of that money available to uh, spend on your employees and your teachers. So that that may be the reason that we had such a quiet day this week. And uh, perhaps it'll get a little bit more exciting next week when the full budget rolls out. 
yeah, uh, I guess we would probably hope for that and, and anticipate that because the big thing this year is uh, going to be raises for state employees and, and teachers. And is it Tuesday morning now they're expecting Yeah, Tuesday morning, 9.30 in the uh, uh, big appropriations uh, room on the, the sixth floor. So that I expect to see lots and lots of lobbyists there to get their hot off the press copies. Weren't they talking about releasing the budget the day before, or is now isn't it now going to be? I Tuesday don't know if morning? it's going to go up uh, the night before. I think under House rules, they're supposed to at least release it to uh, committee members via email like by nine o'clock the night before. So you you may see it come out earlier, but I don't remember exactly if there was any promises made for. Uh, when we'll we'll see it, or, or when at least it'll it'll start floating around the email world, and um, we can get a hold of it the night before. Yeah, I asked some House Republicans yesterday, um, you know, their initial thoughts on the budget, and one email I won't mention who it was, but one email came back and said I haven't seen it yet, so I can't really comment. Um, so it's gonna it's one of those things where everybody's gonna see it, and then it's gonna be frantic for a couple of days with finance committee meetings to talk about fees, appropriations committee on Tuesday, like you said, starting at 9.30. And then I think they're going to vote uh, by Thursday, Thursday and Friday. Thursday, or? yeah. By the end of the week, they hope to have that out and then uh, sent over to the Senate for them to, to do what they want to do on that side. Um, another thing to watch, I think, is the um, sort of the, the most conservative wing of the uh, House Republicans. This was a group of people that uh, thought the, the budget last year in the House was not conservative enough. They voted against it. Um, and they have a very infrequently used Twitter presence. Um, I'm not sure exactly which of them is running it, uh, but it is... Chris Millis, I believe. Probably Chris Millis, yeah. And um, it is authentically them, but but they're voicing a concern on on Twitter the other night that uh, the Republican caucus was not given a chance to review the budget before it's released, and they're concerned that that's not giving them the uh, level of input that they wanted into what the final product looks like. Um, That's something... All right, I was going to step in there and say this is Dan Boylan... uh, I think that's a, a sensation that you have here, that three weeks into the session, you've got appropriations committees coming out with their recommendations, and it'll just be a month into the session that the full that uh, the House will be passing it off to the Senate, which makes me feel like what we've heard from both Senate and House leadership from Moore and Berger, it, it feels if you could sum it up in a sentence, it would be more to get the budget done than what's in it. I think it's really just a, it's as Colin mentioned there, you, you see budget documents that are loaded with pages where there's no changes from the year before. So I really think their, their, their emphasis is to get it done really more than what's in it. Yeah, Craig Jarvis here. I, the committee I went to dealt with the environment and agriculture and commerce and a couple of their labor, I think. But uh, the, the meeting began with Representative Dixon saying, you know, I just want to remind everybody we already have a budget. These are, this is just to tweak the budget. And uh, there were a couple of amendments. One of them was ruled out of order. But speaking of Chris Millis, he also did what he has done in the past, raised a couple of questions about why are we spending this money on this particular line item. And the answer was always, well, that's a big chair issue. You know, don't you can't take it up here. So right. uh, kind of frustrating. And, and if, those right. And if mother and if mother takes away the sort of your allowance each week and puts her purse up on a higher shelf, and you can't really touch the money, what are you going to talk about? And what you can talk about is the fact that HB2 is just all over the place, and there are all these the, the culture wars there for you to yell and scream about. One point I did want to make, Pat, was that uh, this week at the uh, Justice and Public Safety Committee hearing, there was a quick amendment at the very end for the State Bureau of Investigation to 
suspend their air wing. Uh, they've got this old 1976, is it a uh, King Air plane that flies? Beechcraft King it, Air. It's a Beechcraft King Air, sort of right out of a great 70s film. Uh, it does like Con Air type stuff where it flies prisoners from state to state. They supposedly do some drug eradication. I mean, it's probably, talk about the guys who fly that. That's an interesting job. And apparently the thing has recently smoked on certain missions. They've had uh, in-cockpit scenarios with troubles smoke with the and troubles gear. and landing gear issues. And so, you know, you, you hope that these guys get themselves a new plane because it sounds like it's in rough shape. There does seem to be a little bit of politics behind it and how they're trying to go about it, but we'll explore that at a different date, I think. So, yeah, um, there really wasn't that much new information coming out of these uh, uh, separate appropriations committees this week. And I think um, next week will be when the, the the maybe the if there is a controversy in the House budget this year, it will it will emerge next week when we hear about um, salaries and raises and cost of living adjustment uh, for uh, state retirees and how much they get and who gets and who gets those raises. That's where the fun will begin. Um, let's shift gears now and go to the other big topic so far this year and so far this session, uh, House Bill 2. Uh, there were some very significant developments early this week. We'll just touch on this briefly, um, but there were also some pretty significant uh, developments last night. Uh, who wants to chime in on that? Colin, you want to talk a little bit about what happened earlier this week? Yeah, well, I'll actually pass it over to Craig because I was uh, mercifully uh, out of town on Monday when uh, it seemed like there was a new lawsuit being filed every hour. So I'll let Craig explain <laughs> that in a little more detail. Yeah, I uh, noticed your absence, frankly. Uh, <laughs> it, it was a it was a uh, hurricane of a day, I and mean, we had three lawsuits filed uh, over HB two uh, on Monday. Began with the governor's lawsuit. The, the state Department of Justice had given the state till Monday to uh, to say we're not going to enforce HB2, the uh, the anti-discrimination law, and uh, the governor responded with a lawsuit saying we need a court to sort this out because there's a lot of conflict about what's covered under federal law and state law that uh, as well. The uh, the legislative leaders Berger and um, Moore filed their own fairly similar lawsuit. And then in the afternoon, the U.S. Attorney General, Loretta Lynch, and the head of her Civil Rights Division held a press conference in Washington, D.C. to announce their lawsuit, and they cast it in very dramatic uh, civil rights tones. There was, there was no confusion here. It, 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 it's One thing that's always struck me is from the beginning, the news media has been accused of misreporting this. CEOs have been accused of not really reading or understanding the law. Well, now we have a Justice Department. You can't say that about them. I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm saying they've read the bill and they know they know what they're doing. Um, anyway, so that set the tone for the rest of the week, which, uh, which uh, one thing, we saw Pat McCrory out, out and about quite a bit more on national TV and radio. Uh, some controversy the Democrats were trying to gin up about what was he making these he made a couple trips to to net, uh, network interviews and was it was that on the public dime and uh, the governor's office right Colin pretty much said it was um, but that's because it wasn't campaign uh, oriented they they were contending so but we're seeing a lot of uh, we're seeing a lot of the governor maybe not locally he's answered a lot of uh, he's been very visible nationally but kind of inaccessible locally I would say for for local questions uh, from local reporters but uh, he's in the thick of this still, and 
and, and as you said, this, the week seems to have ended with the announcement today, or it was announced last night, but the action today from the Obama administration that schools across the country have to make uh, accommodations for gender identity uh, in the use of bathrooms and locker rooms. So that, that uh, controversy continues to roll on. We also had a conservative think tank file a pretty lengthy public records request on Roy Cooper, uh, obviously the attorney general who's challenging Governor McCrory this fall, and um, they're basically wanting to know whether Cooper has been complicit or has somehow um, conspired with uh, these corporations that have that have come out against House Bill 2 and um, and boycotted the state or left left the state or changed their plans or or whatever. We'll see what what if anything comes of that. And then just this morning, um, I saw saw a headline and somebody else might want to chime in here if, if you want, but where a school system and, and I believe it was Rowan Salisbury uh, area and I, I might be wrong there, but they are they have voted to allow their students to to uh, uh, bring uh, pepper spray to mm. school just in case um, somebody unwanted follows them into the bathroom. So this is this is spiraling uh, in directions that are that are yeah. that are unheard of. Yeah, I, I think. think go ahead. Yeah. Uh, but well, I was going to say this morning I was listening to some Elvis uh, with my wife and my my ten month old boys, and we were having a good laugh. And uh, I then got in my vehicle to drive here, and I heard some terrific right wing radio screeds about was this point zero one percent of the population? No, it's point zero two. And then someone corrected and said actually it's point three percent of the population. That's uh, identify self-identify themselves as transgender, and you could feel that sort of right-wing wave, that surge of like, is this what this is really about? And then I also then thought, well, then 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 there's Pat McCrory, who went from just another North Carolina governor, and who cares, to suddenly potentially a national hero, really in these cultural wars for going directly against Washington D.C. And if you're, he may you know not really care about PayPal or a few other companies leaving he may the their crazy right-wing money may be starting to just flood into his pockets at this point yeah and i and think that could the, be a uh, good thing for him if you were you know faced a lot of scandals at the end of last year and now you suddenly got a lot of cash and a really interesting issue that people are going to say he's with, our he's our man and with that obama administration directive last night about schools uh to the extent that this hadn't already become a national issue this is definitely a national issue now and so it's not just about who's using the bathroom in north carolina we're going to be talking about who's using the bathroom in every single state in the country, and I'm not sure when it'll be resolved, but it's it's going to be dominating the headlines for, for quite some time now and sort of continuing to instigate the fires of the, the culture war, as, as you talked about. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then today, I think it was in the business pages of the News and Observer, it talked about how real income in uh, rural parts of North Carolina in the last 20 years is down like 20% in the shrinking of the U.S. middle class. Yep. So there you go. <laughs> but, you know, bathrooms are a great distraction from, uh, you know, abject poverty. That's right. Um, I, I have a feeling we'll be talking about House Bill 2 uh, just about every week from now until the end of the all session. All House Bill 2 all the time here we, on Domecast. Maybe not even just till the end of the session. It may be till the end of our Domecast or our lives, one or the other. Um, <laughs> that seems to be the direction it's going. Um, and if you can sense my excitement, you are correct. Um Anyway, uh, we're going to move on to our uh, second segment in a second, but we're going to hear first from uh, Colin. Help help introduce this one. Yeah, so uh, Craig was actually at this uh, committee meeting about the um, 
discrimination bill that was filed this week. So I'll let him explain sort of what was going on with that and, and his speaking. Yeah, Chris Grow, our newest uh, member of the House of Representatives, uh, who was a, a LGBT activist as well from Greensboro, and several Democrats filed a bill that was a, just a broad anti-discrimination protection bill. And they had a number of people there, a couple businessmen who you know are against HB2. And they also had the mother, a, a Raleigh woman named Hope Tyler, mm. who is the uh, mother of a now transgendered um, son. And uh, she just she just put it in human terms that what we're talking about are, are people who are you know perhaps your neighbors and uh, at times emotional uh, testimony that she talked about her particular experience. We're going to hear from her now, and we'll be back with a very unique second segment right after this. To the transgender children all over the United States, you need to know that you are loved, and that change is coming. I know your pain because my son is transgender. Fifteen years ago, I gave birth to a beautiful blue-eyed, blonde-haired little girl who never liked dolls or girls' clothes. By age, she was the only girl on her flag football team, and she was awesome. Age 9, 10, and 12 were filled with years of anxiety attacks only reminded, only remedied by trips to the ER. Therapist after therapist couldn't figure out my daughter's issue until age 12 on the day puberty hit. My daughter collapsed in the closet and could not fill her legs. She was diagnosed with conversion disorder. That is when you are so emotionally traumatized that your body loses all feeling in the arms and legs. My daughter said that she felt trapped in her body and after four months... Of therapy, it confirmed that my daughter was transgender. That day, my daughter became my transgender beautiful son. My son had comfortably began to settle in until discussions of HB2 came along. Suddenly, everyone in the trans community had a huge spotlight on them when there was never an issue before. Everyone was catapulted out of their comfort zones. And we're back here on the Domecast. Uh, this is Pat Gannon from The Insider in, in the hosting chair this week. And for the second segment this week, um, earlier in the week, uh, the General Assembly reached some uh, bill filing deadlines, which, as we all know, when bills ha- must be filed, there's always a flurry of last-minute action in the, uh, the House and Senate clerk's offices when dozens and dozens of bills are filed. And there were a lot of interesting ones uh, filed this week, uh, some obscure, some really important, some filed by Democrats that will have no chance of going anywhere, and some that, you know, if they go somewhere, they, they might be quite controversial. But we, we've all decided to pick a bill uh, that was filed this week that may be a little bit obscure, unusual, or interesting and talk about it. So we're going to start with Craig Jarvis from uh, the News and Observer. What bill did you pick this week? I picked the uh, return of the food deserts bill. If you recall, there was a legislation last year that would have put would have spent about a million dollars in 6,000 convenience stores, mostly in rural areas around the state, to put refrigerated produce, basically to encourage, give people the opportunity to eat healthful food, uh, uh, because, as we all know, you know beef jerky and uh, nebs you can't live on alone, apparently. But uh, so it's an effort to get good food, good healthy food out to people. The, the House went along with it. I think it was their idea yesterday, last year, put it in the budget. 
uh, didn't clear the Senate at all. So this time it, it has resurfaced not as a bill but as a, as a budget item. Uh, Representative Pricey Harrison stuck it in the uh, in, uh, environment and agriculture budget. Um, and it would be far less than the million dollars. It would scale back to a $300,000 pilot project. So they're trying again. So was that an amendment from Representative Harrison, it or was, was either, it in the original I version? I think it was an, a, a motion, to tell you the truth, because there were only uh, two or three amendments, two of which were out of order. I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but there were a couple of actual motions that she made uh, to the House budget. It wasn't in the budget that they presented. They added it as a result of the committee meeting. Very good. So the food deserts issue uh, comes back up again this year, uh, and that's got a decent amount of attention the last couple of years in, in North Carolina where there's some, some areas that w- where people have trouble finding uh, good, healthy food. It's, Colin, like, it's like Michael Bloomberg there in New York City with uh, legislating on the soft drinks. Were they 48 yeah. ounce soft drinks or the big gulps? The big yeah, gulp like 4, bill. 4,000 calories. Uh, North Carolina. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, if that bill comes up for a debate again. Uh, Michael Speciale gave a great speech on the House floor last year about uh, how if he wants goes to a corner store, he just wants to get a honey bun and he doesn't see any value in having produce there. He thinks the produce is usually pretty nasty. Uh, but it, w- it was one of the more entertaining speeches I heard. So I, I look forward yeah. to a um, you know reboot of that speech. I'd like to session. just have a tube that had nutrients flow through it. Yeah. So I can put, wrap my lips around it. Yeah, <laughs> and they could sell those pretty easily and, in a convenience store without having to worry about you know fruit going out and of And give my money to some, yeah, yeah. Why give it to local people when you can <laughs> give it to the people with the tube? Yeah. <laughs> Colin, you ready? You want me yeah, to go with mine? Yeah, I've yeah. got it now. I finally found the... Uh, is struggle to find the bill you're looking for in this like deluge of last minute bill filings but my new favorite is uh, possibly the uh, smallest uh, tax relief bill that we're going to see this session. This is Senate Bill 842, and the official title is An Act to Exempt from Sales and Use Tax the Rental of Linens to the Provider of a res- Residential Accommodation. Um, so in shorter, that's the uh, Don't Tax My Towels Bro bill. Um, and uh, this is sponsored. This is sponsored by Senator Bill Cook, uh, which is not terribly surprising given that he represents the Outer Banks, and generally these kind of linen rentals are when you rent a vacation home at the beach, uh, the um, rental company will give you the option if you want to pay like, I think it's the one that I rent, they usually offer it to me for like 50 bucks extra where they'll give you your towels, they'll give you your sheets and you won't have to bring it from home and worry about washing them when they're when you're all done with your, your week at the beach. Um, so this, uh, I, I'm gathering based on doing some basic math here. So if the, if the vacational rental company I use to go to, to North Topsail Beach every summer uh, charges 50 bucks for this service, tax being, what, 7 or 8% sales tax, uh, that's going to save me 3 to $4 if I go to that uh, that option while I'm at the beach. So that, that might be the make or break as to, to whether I spend the extra money on the linen, linen rental or whether I uh, decide to, to save, you know, 55 bucks and uh, just bring it from home and, and wash it when I get home. Uh, so I assume this is considered to be an economic development deal for uh, the coast and, and hoping to uh, get more people willing to pay that extra money for, for vacation linen rentals. But um, I'm not sure it's going to do the trick uh, just for the extra 3 or $4 you might save by, by not having it tax- taxable. But uh, it, it is funny, too, that given this is coming from a, a Republican senator, the Republicans, uh, particularly in the Senate, actually, have made a big deal of, uh, of trying to – 
get rid of loopholes in the tax code and just overly simplify uh, away from all these exemptions that have kind of littered the tax code over the years so that everyone's paying a more fair rate. That's the, the gospel of Bob Brucho that we've been hearing for years, and this is definitely an example of uh, sort of the, the whack-a-mole game of uh, tax exemptions popping up is uh, everyone has a constituency and, and everyone is, is kind of hard to kill. Senator Cook and, and some of the other coastal legislators as well want to make ferries uh, free uh, for for all travelers in the eastern part of the state too. Yeah, and that's in the House budget this year. Um, mm. The House has tried to do that for several years, has not had much success, and uh, they, they claim that they're in uh, earnest uh, negotiations with the Senate already about uh, trying to, to get the Senate to buy into the uh, no-toll ferry plan. But uh, we'll see if that actually happens when the Senate comes out with their budget. They don't sound terribly convinced yet. Yeah, ferries don't cost much at all to ride as it is, and, and you'd just be throwing away a, a bunch of tourist um, dollars. Um, yeah, it's know. one of those w- arguments, I guess, on one hand, you've got the people who are commuting on the ferries, but then you've got uh, tourists who, you know, they're only to ride it once, so they don't really care how much they pay. But uh, And then you get those people who'd save the $3 on their linens, yeah, showing up to take free ferry rides yeah, constantly they, yeah. and be a mess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, they'd, they'd want to ride ferries every day, like, well, I'm saving all this money. Where am I going to spend it? Mom, so what are we doing today? We're riding the ferry again, Johnny. Yeah, the, line, <laughs> the lines might be really, really long for the ferries, too, so uh, you might have to wait a couple boats yeah. to, to well, get Well, unless you off. use that, what is the priority system they did a couple years ago, where if you you have a lot of money, you can buy a special path to go to the front of the line and cut in front of all the uh, the pores that are uh, paying the, the normal rate? Um, I always thought that five bucks, you know, the South, when I lived down in Wilmington, the Southport Fort Fisher Ferry, I think it was $5 either way to go across in your car. I thought that was the best deal going. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, that's another topic for another day. I'm going to, I'm going to jump in here with a bill that I, that I wrote about and that I thought was interesting and that, had, you know, is, is going to potentially get a decent amount of, um, attention for those who visit the legislative building on a on a regular basis from lobbyists to journalists to uh family members of legislators and then all of the classrooms that come and visit and watch the house and senate in action um from the galleries now the galleries are are perched above the uh, house and senate floors and um sometimes they're full sometimes they're they're pretty empty but there's there's usually always people there so a bill was filed by representative rick catlin um, and a couple other prominent House members uh, this week to um, to uh, put metal detectors outside the galleries uh, and require people who sit in the galleries to uh, pass through those metal detectors uh, for sessions. On a, on a typical day when none of the House or Senate members are on the floor, that wouldn't happen. But the uh, the idea is that you know, this building or the legislative building, we're sitting in the News and Observer right now, but legislative building is pretty much open. Um, there are uh, plenty of uh, police around, um, but there really is no, it's considered one of the most open government buildings in the country. And I think a lot of people think that's a great thing, but with the, the protests recently and, you know, any other um, occurrences in government buildings that we don't really want to speak about, um, people are starting to be a little bit concerned about their safety, especially when they're sitting on the floor uh, uh, with the gallery perched above them. Um, so this, I talked to um, the new, newly installed General Assembly Police Chief uh, yesterday, uh, Martin Brock, 
And um, he said that there are a lot of discussions going going on around security uh, in the legislative building. He didn't really uh, give a, uh, you know any details or say what his opinion was, but he said there are there are discussions going on. So I think we'll see more of that in the near future. Now, Dan Boylan, uh, what's your bill? Thank you, Pat. Uh, fascinating bill this week. Talking about fascinating bills, uh, John Representative John Bradford, a Republican from Mecklenburg. I spoke to him, and he. Uh, He'd recently been driving out of state and noticed roadside memorials that were more permanent than the ones that we had in North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina, the Department of Transportation has got a policy that roads that only signage on roadsides can be related to the road. So they've got this sort of. Uh, it's I, I was I was uh, reading about this a little bit more, and it said that uh, roadside memorials, a wreath for someone who's passed away, for someone who's died on the side of, who's died in an accident on that strip of uh, road, um, it's a little bit like uh, uh, speed limits. That you know the posted speed limit is 55, but who really drives 55? And and there's a little bit of discretion as to how this goes about. The Department of Transportation recognizes that families need to grieve, so they if you they see a roadside memorial, uh, they'll let it go for a little while, sometimes up to 30 days, and then they'll try and actively contact the family and say, well, would you please take that away? Uh, Bradford's bill would formalize this a little bit more and allow a system by which you would pay the Department of Transportation $500 for a permanent sign. Uh, might be a small, he was talking about something that was small, the state of North Carolina potentially with the name in the middle of who the uh, who had recently passed away, who the beloved was. Uh, any money that was left over from the construction of this would go to the Humane Society for the rescue of animals in North Carolina. It seemed like a very rational, interesting approach to this uh, sensitive topic. I remember that back when I was working down in Wilmington, there was a spate of fatal car crashes, and there were these roadside memorials would pop up all over the place. Sometimes on state roads, sometimes on city road, you know, city of Wilmington roads, and it was always a big question because there would be pe- there would be people who just really wouldn't like them and thought they were uh, distracting and and would make them sad when they drove by them, and other people thought you know this is perfectly acceptable for to allow families to grieve if that's what they they want to do. So it is one of those things that's been discussed for for a long time and you know hopefully they will come up with a good a good solution to allow families the the appropriate um level of grief for their loved one who is lost and also if you put signs on the roadway it reminds people to be safe uh to be careful yeah Uh, bradford said uh you know something classy and formal and that when you pass these things you often do pause and think ah you know especially if you see one that says someone young or you know mother of so-and-so and and it, it does give you time to pause uh Fascinating. I, I've spent a lot of time around the world, and I had a friend who was an anthropologist in Bali. And in Bali, there'll oftentimes be shrines that people will actively really go and stop and pray at on the side of a road and give flower offerings very regularly. And we do that a little bit here. Uh, and it's a very nice thing. It reminds you of the frailty of, you know, the folly and the shortness of this existence. Right. Um, well, thanks, Dan. Those are four interesting bills. We could each each all probably take three or four more and, and go through a whole bunch, but we don't have time for that here. So we're going to let Dan uh, take this, uh, Dan Boylan, take this segment out. Yeah, speaking of the uh, frailty and folly and joy of this uh, short existence, uh, one evening this week, I was when I left the General Assembly building, I, I was wandering a, across the old state capitol, uh, which is just up the road from the General Assembly, and it was almost sunset. It was that beautiful light, uh, giant oak trees swaying above, and I heard 
a sound. It was a trumpet. Uh, someone was playing the trumpet there, and I wandered over and found an old man playing the trumpet. And uh, we managed to capture a little bit of his story and some of the sound. Richard Jacobson. Richard, where are you from? Upstate New York. And how old are you? I'm 71. Super. super. What are you doing in North Carolina? Well, I'm traveling across the country through the states, the capital cities of each state uh, during this election cycle. Nice. And you play... You Patriotic hymns and uh, Christian hymns. Nice. Christian hymns, classic American... Yeah, like uh, a rugged cross and... Uh, Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah, those... Right, uh, right, the, yeah. the national anthem. National anthem. Super, yeah. super. That's phenomenal. And how many state capitals have you been to? Oh, just two or three so far. I started a week ago. And you're going to go to... From here, I'll go down to South Carolina, Georgia, Atlanta, Louisiana, Mississippi, then up to Arkansas and work my way across. That's about as much fun as you could have. That's fantastic. <laughs> could you play a little something for us? Yeah, sure. Welcome back to the Domecast, and now it's time for... Who is your Headliner of the Week? Who is your Headliner of the Week? Who is your Headliner of the Week? Headliner of the Week. And we're back here on the Domecast with our third and final segment that we like to call Headliners of the Week. Here with uh, three journalists from The Insider and The News and Observer, and we'll start with Colin Campbell. Who's your pick for Headliner this week? Okay, I'm going with somebody who uh, doesn't quite uh, have her name in the news as much. Um, This is Ada Fisher, who is uh, the uh, state committee woman for the Republican National Committee. So basically, uh, the the state Republican Party elects uh, every couple of years uh, two people as their representatives to the national Republican organization. One has to be a man, one has to be a woman. Um, and it's uh, a fairly hotly contested election, particularly this year, uh, given all the acrimony within the party um, surrounding the ouster of Hassan Harnett, the chairman who was uh, kicked out of his job uh, a couple weeks ago and was the first uh, African-American chairman uh, of the uh, Republican Party, uh, but had faced a lot of allegations that have, of mismanagement or that he hadn't fundraised enough, various other uh, things that he was accused of doing got pushed out. Uh, so there's this sort of split in the party between the Hassan Harnett uh, sort of Tea Party oriented grassroots, probably more conservative folks, and then what's more uh, uh, termed the establishment of the party, um, folks like uh, Dallas Woodhouse, who's the executive director, the new chairman uh, that they've appointed, um, Robin Hayes, a former congressman, and, and then the folks that sort of ally themselves with the, the state's top uh, elected leaders. And Ada Fisher's interesting because... 45 seconds, not 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Are we keeping time now again? Uh, this, this is the time the bell comes back. This is when our uh, our recent special guest would be uh, pulling her hair out. Um, yeah. That you're taking way too long. But no, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Well, to, gavel's coming to down speed it up, Colin. Yes. She may be uh, part of this, allied with the establishment wing. She had opposition from somebody who's more Tea Party oriented, won by four votes. And in her speech, she described herself... Uh, in a number of interesting categories. She's a black female Jewish Trump supporter. 
And uh, when I, she said that in her speech, the uh, visiting National Journal reporter from D.C. standing next to me just went wide-eyed because uh, that's the joy of North Carolina politics. So Ada Fisher for uh, Headliner of the Week. Ada Fisher in the hat, and we're going to skip over to uh, Craig Jarvis yeah, from the News and Observer. You. Who's your headliner this week? My headliner is uh, Representative Larry Pittman, Republican from Concord. I think he got his first bill Clear, uh, clearing a chamber uh, this week. He uh, Pittman is one of the, the hard right guys who doesn't mind bucking Republican Party leadership, and he signed on to dozens of bills like anybody else. But he, uh, if I'm reading it right, there were only 13 bills in which he was the first <clears throat> listed um, primary sponsor. And of those 13, this bill uh, was the first one that uh, he got cleared from a chamber. And uh, kind of a humorous uh, nomination, but the, the bill itself is very serious. It has to do with uh, increasing the penalties for impaired boating. They, it's called Cheyenne, Cheyenne's Law, uh, based on the, the death of uh, Cheyenne Marshall, a 17-year-old girl who was killed on Lake Norman last July 4th when she was uh, kneeboarding behind a boat but then struck and killed by a impaired driver. And it would mirror the uh, boating laws with state drunken driving laws. So, so Larry Pittman is the nominee. Representative Larry Pittman from Con- Concord. Yeah, from Concord. Concord. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the hat along with Ada Fisher. So two Republicans. Uh, Dan Boylan. Uh, skip quick, over to you. Thank you, thank you, Pat. A quick one on Ada Fisher. I was it was that old line by I think Richard Nixon once said to Adelaide Stevenson that he was the type of he was the type of politician who would cut down a tree and then stand on the stump to make a speech about environmentalism. (laughs) (laughs) So I sort of thought that there, that when you get those types of wrap-ups at a convention. Anyway, uh, I've got um, an interesting hat to uh, toss into the ring here this week. Chris, Representative Chris Segro from Greensboro, who is uh, LGBT. He's longtime head of Equality NC. And he's, he's really serving in the General Assembly only for is it this short session through so the end of the year right? through the end of the year uh the greensboro democratic uh leadership decided that they would he was he's filling in a seat they wanted to put him in specifically to fight against hb2 this week craig and i happened to see him walking over the bridge that connects the general assembly to some of the to the the back green and the legislative office buildings there and he was uh in the shadow of John Blust, because John is a large man. John is a Republican conservative from Greensboro as well. Chris is a little more slight. And I sat there and thought, how fascinating that this man's only here for about two months, and yet the world, the universe is revolving around him. And how often is it that you get new folks who are just here for temporary times that do have so much power, actually, and so much juice? Uh, at the same time, I thought, you know, it's we can sometimes forget in the speed of, of being journalists that 30 or 40 years ago, Chris Groh, who's an open homosexual, an openly gay man, uh, probably would not have been able to be open at all in the General Assembly. He, he would have had to have hide that and be closeted. So in a sense, we've, we have come a very long way. And this, you know, is HB2 the next piece of this? Or is it just a really wildly crafted piece of social legislation to distract us from the fact that middle class wages are dropping? Hard to say. <laughs> Chris Groh, Larry Pittman, and Ada Fisher all in the hat this week. Um, in journalism school, we were always taught that 
you know, the, you always heard that if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing. And, and then, you know, obviously there's really big, big news that nobody could deny as big news. And then there's the, the weird, wacky stuff that people love to read and that can kind of make it to the front page at times. I think all of these uh, nominees would kind of fit under that category. They're kind of um, unique uh, in their own way. And I really don't know who, who to pick. Um, I'm going to go with Larry Pittman, I think. Um, he has been one of those uh, Republicans who hasn't always seen eye to eye with the uh, with the leadership, hasn't had much luck getting uh, a lot of his legislation through. But this one um, seemed like a no brainer. It's breezed through the, uh, the the first couple committees that went through and breezed through the House floor um, this week. And now we'll go over to the Senate and we'll see what the Senate uh, thinks about it. But this one seems to be on the fast track to. Uh, uh, to passage, um, usually the ones that are that are named after folks, uh, you know, have, probably have a better chance of passage than than other bills. Um, anyway, Larry Pittman, uh, Republican representative, is our headliner of the week, and um, that's it for this show. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll uh, see you next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.